Mr. Schulte, okay. shall we dive in? How are you today? Good, good, good. So I arrived in London this morning. It's about eight o'clock here, feeling a little jet lagged. I have a glass of water. But after the news that I've heard today and after the market response that I've seen, I've also got a glass of wine very, very close by because and really, it, look, it gravely concerns me when when sort of geopolitical issues sort of go into hyperdrive, but they certainly become much more personal for, for me as someone who's been a, a US resident for the last 20 odd years. And for you, obviously, as, a, as the place of your birth, when you see issues that have the potential to rip the country apart. And again, whilst what you and I do is very, very market focused, I think it's impossible to have a conversation about the forward outlook for markets, the forward outlook for the political, what's going to happen in November without discussing what we heard, which is the potential for the over the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And frankly, again, there'll be many people who will be turning off, turning off our commentary right now thinking we're being political. I think we have to boil it down to this question is, if this is going to be a political protest which will dwarf Black Lives Matter, and I do, with all due respect to what we saw with Black Lives Matter, this is, for me, a more passionate issue, a more divisive issue. It goes to the root of of conflict in the United States. It's, I think it's pretty safe to say that race and the abortion issue are the two hotbed social issues in the United States. I'd love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, what the consequences are, because political stability is something that underpins markets. And if you take away that political stability, which is highly likely in the event that Roe v. Wade is something that is, that is no longer applicable to the average American woman, that political stability for me goes out the window. I came on today to, that we we're going to talk about financial stuff, but but I think this is a very fair, it's very fair game. This is a very fair topic. Well, I grew up Catholic. I spent time in a monastery for four years in university, and I came out of that having very little faith, and I, I sort of walked away from my faith, and I have continued to walk away from it. What we have in the United States is a Supreme Court with seven Catholics and two non-Catholics, right? And so what we have also is a federalist society and other sort of dark money groups that are controlled by some extremely conservative right-wing Catholic groups affiliated to Opus Dei. And these have been in the wings for a very long time. And they have a lot of support and a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of very top, top people in the top of the government, in the intelligence agencies, in the White House. And I, I worked in the White House, and, and I, I noticed that a little bit back then, uh, our Opus Dei. And this is a powerful organization, and the Federalist Society is a powerful organization. It speaks to a 35 to 40 percent group of Americans who are deeply conservative. You can call them right-wing. A lot of it is Germanic and Irish Catholic, and I happen to be a mix of both. And these groups have been wanting to overturn three things. They want to overturn abortion, they want to overturn the birth control pill, and they want to get rid of gay marriage. So this is now one down and two to go. And it's sort of a return to the past, to the, the 50s, a, a, a quieter, better time for some bizarre reason. So this is their path through the Supreme Court because it, it will never get passed through Congress. And so this has been their agenda all along, and, and it's extremely well-funded. 
very organized, and it goes against the vast majority of people in America, probably 65%, something like that, who are in favor of a woman's right to choose. They're in favor of gay rights. They're in favor of the birth control pill. To me, it's very distressing that you have a very powerful minority that is able to overtake and and, um, subvert the will of the majority, because that's what a democracy is. The democracy, a, a democracy, a democratic republic is the will of the majority. And in, in America's Democratic Republic, that's 51%, right? And so this is uh, very distressing when 35% can call the shots. And this is what we're seeing now. And I was looking at some of the video in front of the Supreme Court tonight going into today, and it was quite vociferous. And I think that the leaking of that 92-page um, document that was written by Alito has the potential to cause some people to have second thoughts about supporting this. So, you know, it's not a done deal, but it's awfully close to being a done deal. I don't know where this is going. I just think that it's deeply unfortunate. And I I agree with you. It's going to really cause a a tremendous rift in the country. And and if you... Okay, ahead, so, let's, so let's bring it back to bring it back to what you know what I, what the, the 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 people who, who listen to us listen to us for, which is which is market commentary, right? So the reality was that the Black Lives Matter movement was, despite as 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 socially dislocating as it was, proved that markets can look through this sort of thing, i.e., that markets don't really have a moral compass, because markets really didn't miss a beat throughout the entirety of of this. Of this movement, which and correct, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the S and P was up the day of January sixth. So you know, markets generally speaking don't give a give a damn about this sort of stuff. But you know, if we do have legitimate social unrest in the United States, and not like Black Lives Matter, but you know, at a big on a bigger scale than that, right? Is that something that can derail markets? And and frankly, could the timing of this be any worse from a market from a market perspective, given how fragile things are from a inflation, equity derating, tech selling, growth slowing standpoint? Well, that's right. I mean, it, it, it's terrible timing, of course, because we are going through this inflationary derating and interest rate increase. So three things are happening on the financial front, right? The, the discount rate is going up dramatically. Cash flows are probably going to start going down very soon. And we have a lot of social instability that's arising because of inflation, right? And so this is an added layer of instability. I think food shortages, an empty belly is the first, is the best way in the world to get people to start throwing Molotov cocktails at the central bank and downtown central business district. And so, and and that's what happened in the 1970s. Remember in the 1970s, you know, we had the terrible bear market of 73, 74, the nifty 50 were taken out and shot one by one, exactly what's happening right now. Amazon's the latest example of that. Amazon's chart looks horrible. It's just like a horror, hideous head and shoulders, which is unfinished. And so one by one, all the stocks of the Nifty 50 were taken out and shot over a six-month period. And this is exactly what's happening right now. And, and, and I'm afraid that you know, part of this is the way that inflation eats into margins of companies that don't have any pricing power, the way that discount rates affect the overall terminal value of a company, and of course, the cash flows themselves. But I think the biggest you know, part of those three things is the discount rate. 
it's interesting, Paul. I was talking to a client last night who's, you know, uh, he's, he's a dear friend and an old, he's a bank analyst. So bank analysts are always the smartest uh, for many, many years. He said, look, I think most of the damage that gets done during bear markets is done because of interest rates, because of the denominator, right? And, and I mentioned to him that when I was at Credit Suisse, uh, CSFB. Sorry, 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 you mean from, a, from an earnings perspective and a credit perspective? I think that's right. I think that's right. Exactly. Well, but but I think for the equity market itself, I mean, the, the terminal value of discounted cash flows gives us our equity got price, it, got it, got it, got it. right? And 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 CSFB was famous for bringing out EVA, and we had to do EVA for all these damn stocks all over Asia when I was uh, helping out and running the research department back in the '90s. What what we learned, and what I learned, and what I was so struck by is that the discount rate accounts for about eighty percent of the terminal value to get your stock price. The numerator, which is the cash flows, account for only 20%. So if my client, who's very bright, says, I think most of the interest rate damage has been done, I'm going to say, you know what, then I think most of the damage has been done because the effect on lower cash flows as the economy slows is much less aggressive than the denominator, which is those discount rates that when they go up, you know, two, 300, 400 basis points, they can bring down that value. 60, 80%, right? And, that, and, and that's going to be the vast bulk of your reduction in value is because of the denominator discount rate. Got it. So, so, just, so just on that point, if you, if you so I, I, have, I'm, I'm, I have a quandary right now. And my quandary is as follows, that I think that the US economy is heading to a recession at some stage in the next four quarters. And Paul, I think you'd probably agree with that, right? Now, the S&P at 18 times forward is not the multiple that you would have that you would expect going into recession. Now, no, I'm not saying we're going to 12 times forward like we did in previous recessions. You know, I wrote a report on the weekend that says, I think that the, the S&P multiple go to, go to, if you get 16, 16 times forward and 2023 drops to 225, that's roughly 3,600 on the S&P, right? But what's clear to me, so there's a the quandary I have right now is as follows. So using your logic that if the terminal rate starts to start fall, i.e. that what we have priced in to the interest rate cycle is actually not going to eventuate, and you've, you've talked about this at length, right, that the 320, 320-odd basis points of terminal rate that we have currently, we're not getting it, right? So will the Fed stop at 250? Will it stop at, you know, 200, 250? It won't be, we won't get to 325, right? So if you think that the terminal rate is going to fall going forward, and it could fall because of social unrest, it could fall because of recession risk, it could fall because of just, it could fall because inflation peaks out, right? Let's say the terminal rate goes from 325 down to 250. That's that's really supportive of growth equity historically, right? Should be should be good for growth equity, right? If the terminal if the terminal rate falls, get using your denominator argument there. If you lower the terminal rate, then the you know then the the value of future cash flows has to go up precipitously, right? So, but the problem is that we we're at the starting point. We are at the cycle is that we 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 should see, or if we are going to recession. We should see further multiple contraction from here. And that's the quandary for me, right? Lower, lo, a lower term, lo, interest, rates, interest rates heading lower, supportive of equity. Heading towards recession, multiples head lower. 
that's the confusion I have right now because those obviously they are they are polar opposite forces. Well, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And of course, it's all always a matter of looking at what's been discounted. What I would tell you is uh, we got to focus on this inflation number first and see where we can get you know some clarity. And I, I think what's going on here, Paul, is that I, I sent you my note I sent to my clients on the weekend, which was looking at some of the details on the damage that's being done by the rolling lockdowns in China. And I think we really underestimate the inflationary consequences because of that. We're in May 3rd. Probably in the the, the, sec- the first week in June, and then really bad in the first week in July, we're going to be seeing some super bad inflation numbers. Why? Because 80% of Shanghai's freight traffic has gone down 80%. Guangdong's freight traffic has gone down like 30%. And the overall freight volume drop in China overall is about 20 plus percent. And so What's happening here is the largest manufacturing entity in the world is in pretty much lockdown. And so all these ships are stuck in China. They can't go back with empty with, with empty cargo containers to get the next round. And the trucks can't go to back and get the empty, right? Can't empty themselves and go back and get more. And so this just-in-time inventory system of China is totally gummed up. And that's probably going to peak in the next, you know, three to six weeks. And that's going to have a really bad inflation impact because it's going to be a big scarcity of goods. There's going to be an impossibility of getting goods out of Long Beach and the East Coast, Louisiana, and also into Europe. And so I think we're going to get really bad inflationary numbers that are going to be in excess of the worst expectations. And that's going to cause probably a lot of anxiety toward the Fed to even more aggressive in their tightening which I think is a mistake because, again, we're letting COVID dictate long-term policy rather than getting seeing through it and seeing that inflation without the China lockdown probably would be peaking soon. But I think because of China's lockdown, I think we're going to be peaking into the summer. Right. And yeah, I I think the Fed's on the warpath, right? The Fed is on the warpath, man. They're not going to stop. And I think this is a terrible mistake. So, Paul, I had this very neat, very clean, tied up with a little bow inflation framework, right? And again, as everyone, anyone here who knows my work knows that I'm a structural deflationist and I've been dead, dead, dead wrong, right? But my argument was that inflation would peak in, at the end of Q1 going in. So in April, it would, it would peak with the only risk being a, sh- a further shutdown of the Chinese supply chain, which is precisely what has happened. And... Again, I, you've just given you've just stated this. It's a policy. The monetary monetary policy doesn't stop COVID or doesn't doesn't you know doesn't alter the supply chain, right? The only thing that obviously monetary policy can do is affect demand. And the reality is, though, if you've had you know considerable amounts of lost inventory, it doesn't matter. Excess demand will be there, and prices will rise, right? That's it, that is a near term shock now. Does the Fed have the the stomach to look through some near-term inflation spikes? And I don't think they do. No, right? no, 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 no. I don't but think so. all the trouble, but the trouble, the trouble I see also, as I've said, I hate the phrase stay inflation because I think it gets thrown around too much. But if you've got a scenario which I think we're currently in the midst of, where growth is going down and inflation is going up, right? That's a massive problem. I mean, we have totally, totally, I've heard every excuse under the sun why US had why the US had a negative quarter of GDP growth, right? 
And the best one was that net trade was a big drag this time, but that'll turn around. Tell me how the dollar at a 20-year high, right, how the dollar at a 20-year high is a net is a net dra- is 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 going to reverse itself from a net trade standpoint. I know I agree with you. I, I, I agree. I think that's right. And you know, furthermore, what bothers me about what's going on right now is that you, even like some of the people on the left, sort of the lefty, let it go and let it rip, like Ken Rogoff. I sent you a note on that. Ken Rogoff yeah. is talking about 500, you know, basis points of increased rates. But Paul, look at, I, I think we're, we're missing uh, something that's really important. I'll give you a, an example. My, my client is in San Francisco and he had a friend who told him that his friend told him he bought a house two years ago in San Francisco in the city of San Francisco for $6 million. He just had it appraised at $12 million. There is a runaway housing, runaway extreme housing bubble in most cities in America right now that the Fed is justifiably and rightfully really scared about. I mean, you're looking at like everywhere, like Phoenix, Tucson, Austin, L.A., San Francisco, Denver, everywhere, Atlanta. We're talking about 30, 40, 50, 60 percent increases in housing prices in two years. And this is uh, really That's it. A five and a half percent mortgage rate will help that. We'll, We'll fix that problem pretty darn quick. Well, I mean, I hope, I hope, I hope you're right. I mean, we've gone from two and a half to basically five and a half, pretty damn quick. So I think there's that. My one client made a very good point. He said that he he, he had a, a interesting data point in the Bay Area. You're looking at I think 70 percent of the purchases of property in the last couple of years was done with uh, cashed out stock options. And so, right, so, so what this means is you've got a lot of people who made a lot of money in options and they cashed out their options from, you know, startups and what have you, and they use that for purchasing property. Well, who's going to be the next guy to come along? The, 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 right, the options have been cashed out. People with normal income are never going to be able to buy these houses off these people who use stock options. So these people are going to be stuck with a the, with, with the property that's probably going to be really good value in 20 years but really bad value well, but, in five But it years. depends on how much leverage has been used to buy that property, Paul. So if, they, if, they, if it's stock options into cash, cash into home, I mean, there's no, there's no mark-to-market risk with that, right? Oh, um, no. I mean, of course, these guys are all going to be getting a mortgage as well. I mean, you're a fool. You're, you're an absolute fool yep. not to get a mortgage. But yeah, I mean, 30, 30 40% down and, and 60% mortgage, something like that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense from a tax point of view. Well, yeah, but I mean, look, if income, if income, and look, venture, venture at the venture at the moment is a full letter word. I mean, Tiger Global announced another foot eight, fourteen percent down in April. It's down forty four percent for the for the year, which makes that that one billion dollar bond issue that they did in February for the management company look really good for them and really shitty for the bondholders. Look, mate, venture venture is a, venture is a disaster right now. And again, we spend we spend a lot of time focusing on that that Kathy Wood universe, because that stuff is automatically marked to market on a daily basis, right? So if Teldoc's down 50% in a day, we, we see that instantaneously. Q1 marks for VC were a disaster, just a disaster. And, and the family offices that I deal with who have a lot of money with, with the likes of Tiger Global, because everybody has a shit ton of money with Tiger Global, right? These, everyone's sucking wind. And whether it's Hill House, which you were very early to, to alert people to, Let's face it, it, it. You know, Tiger Global is the Hill House of 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 the United States, right? It's a it's a 
It's down 44%. At its peak, it was north of $100 billion. So let's let's round the map. This is a company that you've seen $50 billion of capital destruction over the course of a four-month period, right? It's remarkable. We're seeing sort of multi-asset, whether it's balanced portfolios or multi-asset capital destruction, which is borderline unprecedented, borderline unprecedented. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, does that actually feed through to economic activity or is that just a bunch of... Is that just a bunch of rich guys getting slightly less rich? Oh, no. I, I, I mean, all you have to do is look at uh, Robinhood down 80%. And, you can, and there's like 7 to 8 million people involved in Robinhood. And those people have been completely cleaned out. And you, I remember you and I were talking about this a long time ago. All those stocks they held, everyone owned the same stocks in the same you know, company. In the same, and they owned Robinhood stock. And they owned the same stocks in that stock. And so it just has been a, a cascading unwind where uh, millions of retail investors have been cleaned out. And so I, I think it's going to have a, a, a definite ripple effect w- without a shadow of a doubt, not just for wealthy people, but also for, for you know, the middle class as well. And Wall Street Journal had a great article about how, how uh, well, they described it as NFT sales are flatlining, right? I think you should, what the real phrase is, NFT sales are absolutely fucking collapsing, right? So what was the example they used saying, Bless you. From the Wall Street Journal article today, the NFT, an image of a green-skinned astronaut standing on what looks like a Hollywood Walk of Fame star, is now for auction with an asking price of $25.5 million, and the current best bid in Ether is 0.0734 Ether or $210. At the end of the day, the, the, the NFT market will revert to the contemporary art market, which is, you know, again, you can argue about the froth of the contemporary art market, but, mate, just because you have a laptop doesn't mean you can de- you can develop an NFT, right? Well, that's right, and I, I wrote about that to my clients. I, there, there was a piece out by Vice. Vice.com does some good stuff in the NFT universe. What I read, and I did a lot of deeper digging, several other uh, stuff on Reddit and some of these other places, it's good to go down occasionally, go down rabbit holes. And you could see that the NFT market was just being overrun by essentially criminal syndicates. And this was back in January. And so I just said, get GTFO. I just finished a freaking book on all all this stuff and how great it was going to be. And then it just gets overrun by essentially mafia-driven criminal syndicates and front runners and rampers and groups of, of creeps all over the world who are cornering markets and driving up prices and getting out and, and dumping. And so, so yeah, that this is deeply distressing. This is something that, that is very, very real indeed, but was overrun. I mean, there's the old saying, Paul, that bad money chases out the good money. Well, the good money never had a chance to get into the NFTs. The bad money went in automatically right before anybody else did. And so, this is the consequence of all this like flaky, criminal, irresponsible mafia money, syndicate money that just went out of control, but a very small market. So it, it was more noticeable. It became more illiquid and it has done more damage. And that's what happens in these small markets where criminal syndicates uh, r- r- rule the shop. So, to make so, so much to hate about this. Let's be frank. There is a lot to hate about the world. I think you and I simultaneously have gotten constructive about one place, which has been very underloved for a very long time. Has Chinese equity in the space of five weeks gone from global pariah to, to only possible safe haven? Is Again, my views on this are very straightforward. 
It trades at less than about half the multiple of the S&P, less than half the multiple of the S&P. Admittedly, that's distorted by banks and the like, but there's no doubt that high quality tech in China trades at massive discounts to, to US tech that you're seeing an end to tech, sorry, a, a, a peaking in technology regulation, clear evidence of currency weakness, which is a policy directive, further talk of monetary and fiscal stimulus in the year of Xi Jinping's coronation. And I can say one thing with confidence is that Xi Jinping does not want his the year that he is confirmed as effectively ruler for life or, or at a minimum an unprecedented third term in the modern era for the economic situation to be in the state that it is currently. Put it simply, the world is tightening policy and China's easing policy. And for me, that sounds like a scenario where you should be long Chinese equity relative to the rest of the world. Well, I think that's right. And we're already seeing that you have some really like stinker Rooney stocks that are very large cap stocks and they're flat for the year. So they're outperforming, you know, the S&P 500 by like 1200 basis points. Oh, Fosun is a good example. Fosun is flat as a pancake. It's it has it's got hair all over it. It's got all these problems and so forth, but it's a flat as a pancake. It's flat for the year. So it, there's an example for you, right? And I agree with you. I, I think from the point of view of tax, from the point of view of FX, from the point of view of monetary and fiscal, all of that is all in ultra loose mode. And China's been going sort of counter cyclical versus the West for 20 years, right? It just has been, in fact, current account surpluses versus deficits mean this is the case, right? So, so in 2008, China was flush with cash and bailed out the world. Now that the West is going into some sort of miasma again, China's, you know, going into, right? It's going uh, into, its, into its mode of being able to throw out the liquidity. I think that China, you heard it here first, I think China's going to start quantitative easing. China's going to start quantitative easing. Right. So, so you're going from from required reserves because there was so much damn liquidity, right, that that they had to pull that money out of the market to voluntary reserves. Right. Where where the money is being pulled into the central bank because there's all this liquidity sitting around that is not being distributed because the banks are too frightened to lend. And so I think I think you're going to get that uh, phenomenon in China going forward where the Fed is trying to. Right to, to bring in that that quantitative easing, right? Because the Fed thinks America's healthy. The Fed thinks that they can do that, and everything's going to be fine. And I, I remember Powell saying back in 2015, "Oh, we're just going to be," uh, and maybe even earlier, maybe even like 14, when he first came into the Fed, he said, "We're going to be on autopilot, raising interest rates for a long, long time, and everything's fine." Well, guess what? It wasn't fine. And the world fell over in 2015, 2016. Again, Europe went into a terrible recession. And so Powell um, is probably under a tremendous pressure to, to do this all over again. But I think it's I think it's going to end up being overkill and we're going to pay a big price for it going into the fall. That's my thinking. Probably a rally between between here and then, but the 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 fallout's going to be um, we got a strong dollar which is tightening. We have monetary policy, which is tightening. We have tax policy, policy which is tightening. We have fiscal policy, which is tightening. Right? Tell me what is wrong with this picture. You can't have a market at 20, whatever, 18 times earnings. And I just looked at the EV to EBITDA and all the other parameters for some work I'm doing uh, going to London next week. I mean, the, the, the tax sector is still at like 50 times EBITDA. I mean, come on. What? 
what you know we're, we're, we're still very expensive here sorry oh sorry on an on a equal weighted basis yeah on an right. equal weighted basis got it got it got it yeah but i mean look i mean i the stat i think that people don't focus enough on is that like in the last 12 months the fiscal deficit's gone from 16 percent of gdp to, to about 7.8 percent of gdp that's a huge contraction that's an enormous contraction right and that goes back to the very basic argument about covid is that you cannot have if you if you use fiscal spending to plug holes because you force an economy shut, and then you withdraw that capital. That is a hit to growth, right? And we're and we're seeing this right now. And mate, put it this way: so I just while I was looking at the again, far from perfect, but the Atlanta Fed GDP GDP now prediction for the second quarter is one point six percent, right? One negative one point four percent quarter on quarter in in Q one, one point six percent positive in Q two. That's roughly flat. That's that's zero growth, roughly, give or take, right? That's zero growth with 8% inflation, right? That is a disastrous scenario, right? We'll put it in, no, let me word it slightly differently. That's a scenario where the S&P at 18 times forward is the wrong price, right? Yeah, and of course, all we have to do is look at these. I'm not a big fan of technicals. I've never liked them, but I think there's one that is, it's always on the mark. And it always tends to complete itself is those unfinished head and shoulders where, you know, the the the, the head is a big rally, which we saw late into the end of the last year. And then as we've come down on the other side of that, we're starting to basically have a mean reversion, right? This is what it is. It's mathematical mean reversion to levels that are what we saw maybe a, a year ago or so. Now, the problem I have with this, Paul, I've looked at quite a few stocks and I, I did a quite a few, some bans on price earnings bans and EV to EBITDA bans. Right. Well, great. So we can have a, a, a reduction in valuations, right? A, a multiple contraction of 30, 40%, right? So uh, a stock I'm looking at, which is a really interesting company, Dassault um, Solutions in France, great company, right? Amazing cash flow, fantastic company, right? One point five billion dollars in cash flow, and you and it's come down like thirty percent. The problem is, it 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 what five six years ago in two thousand fifteen sixteen, it might have been trading at an EV to EBITDA whatever eleven. Now it's at eighteen, right? So the point I'm making is it's come down a lot but it's still trading at a very substantial premium to where it was in 2015, 2016. Are a lot of these stocks capable of holding the valuations that they have now after 30, 40, 50% corrections, even though that still represents a 100 to 200% premium over 2015, 2016? I'm not sure. Well, but Paul, at the end of the, where I push back at the, on these arguments, right? So, and what some of the arguments saying, well, we should go back to where we were in, you know, in December 20, in De- equity should go back where they were in December 2019. I think those arguments are far too, super, far too superficial. Let's look at Amazon, for example, right? So Amazon's, Amazon's um, e-commerce business looks like, a, looks like a very old, mature business right now, right? So does that deserve, you know, does that deserve an average multiple? Probably not. AWS is on fire. AWS is on fire, right? So these companies, I think you've got to think about this about the sustainability of those earnings. Now, if those, if if these are companies where earnings went up because of QE and earnings all just collapsed because of QE, right? You don't want to touch any of those. But I don't know if the likes of Apple or Microsoft or 
um, your Adobe or these sort of companies, you know, high, high quality tech companies, Salesforce, these sort of firms, right? They're not going back to earnings profiles of 2019, right? They're going, they're, they've, they've got earnings profiles well in excess of 2019, right? So their multiples may go back to something like that, but their share prices won't because they, I don't see earnings dropping by 40 and 50%. They might drop by 10%. But they're probably not dropping by 40 and 50, right? And that's where I think that the notion of it was a 3,600 two years ago, it's going back to 3,600 because that's the price level. But you can't look at it that way. I think you've got to look at this in terms of multiples, right? No, I, I think that's very fair. Yeah. I think it's a very, I think you're making a very coherent. And I th- I've been struggling with that all day long because I'm, I'm doing some stuff on this right now for a couple of companies and I've been struggling all day long on this, on this argument. My intuition is, we don't need to, catast- to catastrophize and say that things need to get back to a level either pre-QE from the pandemic or even earlier than that. But my client made the point, right? My client made the point. He said, Paul, that guy's house in San Francisco doubled in exactly the same way that the Fed balance sheet doubled in the same period of time. And, yep. and number two, Powell is making a case, and, and, I, th- I, th- and, and, and I think he's crazy, to get the balance sheet of the Fed back to sort of 2018 levels, I think Never it's just easier, easier said than done. Yeah. Never get there, mate. Because, mate, because at the end of the day, the most they'll do, because they'll never, again, I stick to what I've said for months now, they will never sell a bond in the market, right? So the most they will let happen is the maturity profile of that, which is about $100, $100 billion a month. So let's round that to you know $2.5 trillion over two years, Right. So if look if we're put it well let's put it this way if we if we're in recession within four quarters like I think we will be right that means that the the balance sheet of the Fed would have would have shrunk by a trillion dollars and a trillion dollars only before they have to start easing policy again. I agree, and I, I think also I think on that exact point I, I'm going to keep on saying this. Uh, this is my new mantra: wait, keep your powder dry until you see negative rates, negative nominal rates at the short end, because that that that's going to happen because. What's going to happen is you're going to really exhaust economic activity and then banks won't have any opportunities to lend either for corporates or for, for, for homes, or households or individuals because people are going to be scared to, to expand, to grow, to, to build a new house, to renovate, whatever, right? To, to do the extra master's degree, to really have the, the splash out wedding for the daughter. They're not going to do any of this. And so there's going to be all this liquidity stored up in the system. And that liquidity is going to end up, you know, causing rates to turn negative on the short end. And then that is exactly, I guarantee you, it's not if, but but when, right, that the Fed must engage in quantitative easing to restore the price of money equal to zero by taking supply out of the market. It's got to reestablish that supply-demand equilibrium in order to keep the rate of the, the, the price of money at zero at the very worst. Why? The Fed's living, breathing, fundamental assumption without exception is American banks are not going to have negative rates. Negative rates destroy banking systems. We are not doing that. We watched Europe do it. We watched Japan do it. We're not doing it. And whatever it takes to keep rates uh, above zero is what we're going to do. And that automatically requires quantitative easing by the Fed. Mate, what are you looking at this week? Well, I'm getting ready to go to London to see some clients there. And are you going to be in London next week? I'm, I, mean, I, arrived this, I arrived this morning. So I'm here for the next two weeks. So you and I will catch up 
We'll, we'll talk offline. Let's get some clients together and maybe do a do a drink or some dinner or something like that. Happy to do. Yeah, I'm 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 getting all my my research ready for London and doing a couple of projects for clients and that's it. Brilliant, mate. Have a have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week in London and we'll uh, everyone. Thanks for joining. Okay, bye.